Thanks, Michael. Uh, we said throughout the day, the way to manage the names in the Bible is anything with confidence when you're up the front, so well done. Good effort. Uh, that's great. We, um, we have come tonight to Philemon, and, and you know, you buckle yourselves in, hey, like we're going to do a whole book of the Bible tonight in, in one message. Uh, that's pretty exciting. Uh, it happens to be only 25 verses long, so that's also probably helpful for us, but that's what we're looking at tonight. Can I remind you that we have a Q&A at the end? And so as questions occur on the way through, please feel free to drop them down, maybe on your Care and Connect card, so that we remember them uh, and that we can clarify them at the end. That would be really great. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for this ancient letter. Please let it live here amongst us tonight. And help us, Father, to be the community that you want us to be. Do your work here, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to play a game to start tonight, so I know that you'll be up for that, uh, church. Uh, the game is, uh, some of you have seen this, but that's okay, we'll give some other people a chance. Uh, what we want to do is, I want you to see if you can tell me the first name of the people who are on the screen. So, if we start with this magnificent gentleman here, uh, can anyone call out his first name? Don. Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's Don. Uh, his second name is... Bradman, he's famous for cricket. We can do better, can't we? Uh, what's he famous for in cricket? Uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Callum? Best test average, which is 99.94, a magnificent and imperfect uh, legacy to leave behind. That's the Don, born in 1908. Uh, oh, I messed it up. Joan, yes, okay, uh, so uh, does anyone know her second name? So it's Joan, Joan, yes, and I said all day it's Noah's wife, isn't it? Joan of Arc, very good. What is she famous for? She was a witch. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Doug. Uh, she probably wasn't a witch, but um, what was she famous for doing? Someone called out this morning, beating the poms, helping the French to beat the poms. And then they connected that with Don Bradman, who was uh, helping to beat the poms as well. Uh, does anyone know the first name of the last gentleman on the screen? Albert, what's he famous for? His brain, that's a good answer. Uh, more, more importantly, E equals MC squared, theory of relativity, all those exciting pieces of physics. So why are these guys famous? They're famous so that you know their first names or at least two out of three of them, uh, which is fantastic, right? They're famous because they are truly extraordinary individuals. They are extraordinary. They did incredible things in their lives. And as I look at you tonight, in the best possible sense, I want to say that you're pretty ordinary. You're pretty ordinary. We are pretty ordinary. In, in some sense, we're a pretty ordinary collection of humans. There aren't too many extraordinary ones amongst us. But there is something about this gathering which is made extraordinary by the extraordinary one who pulls us together. The extraordinary one who pulls us together is our saviour Jesus, who not only died for our sins but conquered death, rose again, and now rules at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Well, he gives us new life. We can have a fresh start. Our sins can be utterly forgiven and we can be made new. But more than just your salvation, which is actually important, he actually saves us and adds us into a new community. 
that you and I aren't just saved on our own, but we're saved to be something together. That is an extraordinary community. That's what we're going to speak about tonight. But we're going to do that through the lens of looking at somebody. I invented a word, right? Extraordinary. These people are subordinary. They're below the normal. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke about slaves, and we're going to talk again about slaves tonight. Uh, slaves were approximately 33% of the population in the first century. What that meant in practice was that there were millions and millions of men and women, boys and girls, who were owned by other people. And they had no protection under law. They couldn't go to court and say, my master beat me, because the master was allowed to beat them. In fact, he could do literally anything he chose with them because they were goods and chattels. In many cases, they had no name. They had no name. And the reason for that is uh, you don't name your watering system at home. You don't name your dishwasher. You don't name the oven because they're just tools in your house. You don't have a pet name for your dishwasher. And that's what they were. They were just people who carried out a task. But because they were without names, because they had tasks to do, in in essence, they had no personhood. They weren't really respected as actual human beings. They're just functionaries that floated around. Now, the importance of this, as I spoke about a little while ago, is that slavery powered Rome. It wouldn't be possible to have the Roman Empire without the extraordinary daily work of people who weren't paid at all for it. Rome was built pretty much on the back of slaves. And that meant that across the centuries, give or take a few exceptions, nobody raised any ethical objections to slavery. See, why would I have a big moment where I go, you know what, guys, we've been doing this all wrong. I would really like to do all my dishes, to do all the farm work. I'd like to give up having... No one's having a moral crisis because they're benefiting from having slaves. Does, it, does this make sense? The, the only people who could have had a moral crisis about slavery were the slaves. And guess what? They didn't have any rights. So nobody really had a moral objection to slavery. But what was everywhere was distrust. Because if somebody owns you, And they get to tell you everything that you do. They can sell you on a whim. And this is what happened. Guys, imagine that you started a relationship. Maybe even you got married to a fellow slave. On the master's whim, they could pick you up, put you at the market the next day and sell you without any regard for your bond of commitment, for the fact that you'd never see your children again. Now, if somebody owns you like that, what do you think you want to do with your master? Yep, somebody said it. You want to kill them. And so what happened in Rome was there was this pervasive sense that masters were always on edge, that slaves were always trying to take advantage or get an angle on their masters. And so there was just this sense of distrust throughout the whole community, fear on all sides. How do you keep all that fear in check? Well, you carry a big stick. And so violence was literally a part of the daily life of almost all slaves. Sure, there were some nice masters, okay? But violence was basically how you keep everyone in check. How do I make sure that you never rebel? Well, you make sure every slave who rebels is killed. In fact, if you were a runaway slave, 
more likely than not, if you were caught and there was a special group of people who were designated as people who tried to catch runaway slaves, I call them the Boba Fetts of the ancient world, uh, these people, if they caught you, would bring you back and you would see, if you were captured, that crucifixion was very often the outcome for runaway slaves. See, why do we have to make such a terrible example of you? Well, if you can run away and live happily, what do you think every other slave in the Roman Empire is going to do? See you later. So they made an absolute landmark of these ones. And in fact, there was a uh, a particular household where uh, a slave ran away and uh, and, uh, took stuff from the master. And I was reading this week that they, they killed all 400 of the other slaves in the household in order to send a lesson that nobody should run away. To be a runaway slave was to be in fear of your life, even as you sought your freedom. Well, we're actually talking about a runaway slave tonight. Philemon is a slave owner. He's also a Christian. He has a slave, a slave called Onesimus. And you're going, how do we get to Philemon after we spent a whole term looking at Colossians? Well, I want to show you the collection, the connections at the end of chapter 4 of Colossians. Have a listen to this. Uh, Paul's writing at the end of his letter, these little greetings things. He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you what is happening here. So what was happening was Onesimus is Paul's precious postman. Paul's precious postman. He's a guy who's bringing the letter with Tychicus from Rome to the church in Colossae. So Onesimus is already being introduced to the church by saying, hey, I'm sending Onesimus. He's a good bloke. You know him. That's pretty faith-filled given that he's a runaway slave returning home. Well, we're going to look at this letter, the letter to Philemon. And as we do it, we're going to think a little bit about identity as we break it up into bits and pieces. One place you always need to have your identity on you is the airport. Is anyone going to the airport soon? Yep, been recently. If you go to the airport, particularly if you travel internationally, you have to constantly prove your identity. Who are you? Can you prove it? Well, I've got a tiny little paper book that says who I am. I want you to see at the start of this letter, there's a bunch of identity information. So if you've got the Bible, please open it up. Uh, We're in Philemon, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 3. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if if we break this down... We can see, first of all, that Paul identifies himself as the author. He says, I'm a prisoner. But then I want you to see there's a whole bunch of new things. Because they've met Jesus, there are new things. There's a new relationship, a new task, a new community, and a new status. Let let me show you, just in these first three verses. Timothy is called our brother. Now, you might not know, but Paul and Timothy aren't related by blood. So when he says, Timothy is our brother, what he's saying is through Jesus, we have become family. So Paul and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our friend. Well, that, that's okay. You write a letter to your friend. That's fine. Our fellow worker. Our friend and fellow worker. What he's saying is, Jesus has given me new life, but he's included ask in a task, a big task to see, well, he didn't say it this way, but new life in Jesus come to every home, right? There's a big task that God's on about. And so Philemon is identified as a fellow worker. And then it says, and Apphia, our sister. Can you see again, they're not related, but she is now part of the family of God through Jesus. And then Archippus is called our fellow soldier. Not only do we need fellow workers, but the kingdom going forward is actually a battle. And so what am I looking for? Well, I want people who will be working in the field with me. That's a fellow worker. But because it's a spiritual battle, what he says is, this guy, he's a soldier in the battle with me. Now, that's a pretty cool kind of way to refer to someone, isn't it? A fellow soldier. And it's not that they're picking up arms and fighting the Romans. It's that they're taking up prayer and engaging in the spiritual fight to see the kingdom advance. And then he refers to a church. See, it's not just a couple of people at the other end, but there's a church in Colossae, a gathering of God's people, a new community. At the end of the letter, he mentions Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, and again, they're called fellow workers. And then there's this status before God. See, if if you tonight didn't know as a Christian, many of you will know this already, but how does God think about me? For a bunch of you, you might think, well, you know, of course God likes me. I like me, so why wouldn't God like me? I'm sure there are a bunch of people outside our, our church who think that, right? Some of you have a guilty conscience and you think, gracious, I don't know how God can stand the sight of me. I, I fall sort of my standards. Imagine the standards of a holy God. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by guilt. What's the status for Christians? Well, it's actually in this opening here. It actually says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The new status for you tonight, if you're trusting in Jesus, is you can have grace from God and peace. God's not your enemy anymore. He's your loving heavenly father. And so all of that, just in the first three verses. I want to ask, I guess, is your new life bigger than you? By by which I mean, do you come to church thinking, I hope tonight I get my thing out of church and then I can go home? Or have you been invited into a task, a community, a status? Is that part of your picture of what new life truly means? Does anyone know this turn of phrase, thoughts and prayers? When do we hear this turn of phrase, thoughts and prayers? Thank you, Graham, up the back. When there's, a, when there's an American shooting, this terrible habit they have over there, um, someone will always be saying thoughts and prayers. And uh, as I've observed across today, one of the tragedies is in Australia, whenever we get to one of these tragic kind of moments, our politicians are now so, uh, I want to say this carefully, but gutless. They'll say our thoughts are with you. They won't even do the thoughts and prayers, right? The the American thing is thoughts and prayers, and I don't know how many people actually pray, but it's the standard thing. We say thoughts and prayers. In Australia, we can't even bring ourselves in public life to say thoughts and prayers. We just say thoughts. And as I've said across the day, bully for you. You've got some thoughts, do you? Well, how wonderful. They make precisely no difference. 
The reason we say thoughts and prayers is because when we pray, we're involving the sovereign God in the terrible tragedy, aren't we? And we're asking that somebody intervene beyond what is happening in the natural world. Well, Paul uses thoughts and prayers in the best possible way here. Have a look in verses 4 to 6. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your part." I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Well, let me explain that. I want us to think a little bit about how we pray for those on the mission field, and that's really what Paul is doing. So first of all, we see that he prays regularly. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Man, I love Paul's prayer life. It must have been pretty jam-packed. Admittedly, do you guys know what he did for a job? Apart from being a missionary, does anyone know what he did to earn some money? He was a tent maker. And, and what that meant, he, he was stitching leather through the day, right? Now, I don't imagine that takes a whole lot of higher order thinking. And so I'm guessing as Paul was doing that, he was probably praying. So he says, I always, I always remember you in my prayers. See, there's a thought, I remember you. And often we have this thing where we go, oh, I'm, I'm thinking of my friend. Here's my encouragement, church. It's perfectly human to think of your friend. It's Christian to think of them and then pray. Do you see? Thoughts and prayers. And so my encouragement is, as you remember these people, pray for them. So as as, uh, Philemon pops into Paul's head, he prays for him. And he prays with thanks because he sees something in his life. He has heard, or actually it says it's present tense, he hears about his love for all the holy people, and his faith in the Lord Jesus. If I hear a good report about you, right, what do I hear about you? Well, I hear they're working hard at their job. I hear they're studying well. I hear they have a pet name for their dishwasher, or whatever it is that I hear, right? How many of us would it be said that we hear of your faith and your love? What a wonderful compliment to Philemon that that was what Paul had heard report of. But then we have this other bit here where it talks about partnership. And I actually think this is really interesting. He says, I pray that our partnership may be uh, with you in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share in Christ. I've I've been thinking about this, and and we have a little practice uh, at the Star Household. Uh, We we have some missionaries in our church, um, Howard and Michelle, and we often pray for them, and I think we did the other day. There they go. If you want to look at some prayer points for them, you can find them on the wall just there. You can have a look at that. Um, but at, at the Star Household, we have one of these little books. I don't know if you've ever seen them. We've actually got one that's a little bit uh, bigger than this one. But it's a, a CMS prayer diary, Church Mission Society. And what we do over dinner, not frequently enough, isn't that right, Caro? But what we do occasionally over dinner is I say to the kids, what day of the month is it? Does anyone know what it is today? 29th, thank you, Peter, you're switched on, sharp as a tack, very good. It's the 29th today, and what we say is we go to the book, and you go and you find the 29th, and then we go, in the book, they've got missionaries from all the way around the world that CMS has sent out. And in the book, you look at the 29th, and we go, kids, what country is that? The kids have to find the country, great. And then on the other page, there's a set of missionaries, and they have a little fight, because they're not here tonight, so I can talk about them. They have a little fight, and they go, I want to pick, I want to pick, anyway, one of them will pick. And they go, that one. I go, okay, read it out. And we hear about somebody who's a missionary in Spain. 
maybe working on the college campus there to help make Jesus known. And then over our dinner table, we pray together and ask that God would help them to bring the good news of Jesus to the people in Spain. On the, on the... Now, what happens when we do that? We share in, we get reminded of, we, we build a better understanding of all the good things we have in Jesus. Because you see, if somebody can go to Spain to tell people about Jesus, what should we do? Probably we should do it here in Oran Park, shouldn't we? And so we actually, as we partner with other people in the gospel, we have an even better chance to see the goodness of the message that God has given us. And so I guess I want to ask you, church, you, if you've received the message of new life, is it an active new life, a new life that is active in prayer and in partnership with those who are making the message of new life known? Is that what it looks like for you, to have new life? Well, I've been making uh, Caro wish for a new life um, by, by having her watch uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Has anyone seen Lawrence of Arabia? Some of the uh, gentlemen are nodding their heads. If you haven't, it's four hours you'll never get back, uh, is basically, I think, what Caro would tell you. Is that right, beautiful? Anyway, it's, um, it's about uh, T.E. Lawrence, uh, a British soldier in Egypt and uh, Palestine and various places, um, and he's in the desert. At any rate, he came to this oasis, and it's a great part in the movie. However... Forget the, forget the movie. Uh, Paul says that Philemon has been a spiritual oasis for him. A spiritual oasis for him. Have a look with me from verse 7. Your love, he says to Philemon, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, and this is where he gets to the heart of his message. This is why he's writing the letter. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold, and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is, none other than, it is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appealed to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Basically, what we have in Philemon is Paul, writing to a man called Philemon about a runaway slave and seeing if this runaway slave can come home. How does Paul do it? Well, he appeals to Philemon. Paul could have gone, I'm the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do what I say. doesn't do that. Mind you, I think he does lay it on a little bit heavy. Did you see how he speaks about himself? Paul, an old man. And also in prison. I mean, that, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty persuasive, isn't it? Who's going to say no to an old man in prison? But he says to him, I'm not ordering to you to do it. I'm trying to win you over. I want this to be an act of love that you receive back this young man. And then he says all that bit about useful. Have a look at verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Well, how was he useless? Well, he was useless because he ran away and you couldn't use him anymore. But you know what Onesimus means? It has a name. The name means useful. So what he's really saying is useful became useless to you. He's become useful to me. And now I'm sending useful back to you that he might be useful again. That, that's essentially uh, what's happening in this little section here. Uh, I guess I want us to think about, this is actually an incredibly audacious thing for Paul to do. Okay? He's asking a slave master 
to take back a runaway slave as a brother. And we think, of course he is. Duh. But, but remember that in society, if the runaway slave comes back, you could reasonably expect to what? Crucify them. And so here's Paul saying, I really want you to have him back. And look, I think the really challenging thing is, imagine Onesimus came back into our congregation here. Now, as fellow slave owners, most of you, some of you are slaves, but as fellow slave owners, what would we think about letting a runaway slave back into our church? If the owner didn't kill him, we might, to make sure that my slaves didn't run away so they could receive a wonderful welcome. Do you see? So Paul is asking something extraordinary here, and I guess we should think, would we be a church who would be willing to welcome back a rebel, an outsider, a lawbreaker? Would we be a church who would welcome them? Would this be a space where we would be okay for them to come if they'd found Jesus? I actually think that's really challenging. And I think Paul is asking something extraordinary of Philemon and this church when he writes this letter. Uh, Have you guys heard about these DNA tests that you can do to find out about your medical uh, background? Have you you heard about these? You kind of put your saliva in a little thing and they they do all these medical tests. What they've been finding is that the people who do these DNA tests um, find out more than about the diseases they have. Have you guys read any of the stories about this? You heard about this? So basically what happens is I send a way to find out about my family, right? And it'll tell you about your mum and your dad. And when your mum and dad do theirs, here's what you find out. Oh, my dad isn't my dad. And I didn't know that before I did a medical test. And my auntie isn't my auntie. She's my mum or whatever it is. Like just crazy secret family things come out when you look at the, the DNA. I want you to see here, that's a terrible outcome. I want you to see here, there's some unexpected family that's revealed in the church. Have a look at these next set of verses. Listen to the way that Paul writes about Onesimus. In verse 12, he says, I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem to be forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Have a listen to Paul's language. He's got a new vision of who Onesimus is. According to the world, Onesimus was a a man with a death sentence. According to Paul, Paul says, I'm sending him who's my very heart. He's saying, you should take him back no longer as a slave. He's saying, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. And then he goes even further and saying, he's dearer to me both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. What's he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing is he's raising up the humanity of Onesimus. He's raising up the humanity of Onesimus. And I guess the question I want us to think tonight is, do we have the good news clear enough to give us a foundation for the worth of every individual? Uh, Let me me just tell you this. I, I think our society believes, at least it says, everybody's equal. Everybody's of equal worth. 
but it doesn't know why. And so what it does is it says everybody's of equal worth so long as you're born. Yep, then you have value. If you've been born, you have value. If you haven't, you don't have any value. And then, then society will say everybody is equal. Everybody should have a free voice except the people who are saying the things that we don't want anyone to hear anymore. And they're despicable people. All of a sudden, their worth dropped away, didn't it? And so our world says everybody's equal, but it doesn't know why. And what that means is not everyone is equal in our world today. As Christians, we have a better story. As Christians, we say that everybody is valuable. Why? Because everybody is made by God, and everybody had their sins paid for by the Lord Jesus. So how do I know you're valuable? I know because you're a human being who God made. How do I know you're valuable? I know that you're valuable because Jesus died for you. Do you see? So my question, church, is will we let the foundation for the why be the good news? Then we've got a real answer to why everyone, even the despicable, even the people who hate us, everyone has value, made by God, loved by Jesus. Secondly, if you say that you should take him back as a fellow human being, what happens is, very slowly, this view kills slavery. Because my dishwasher turns into a person. Are you with me? And so over time, if you follow this out, 300 years later when Constantine becomes the emperor, slavery is abolished. Because humanity is restored when we treat everybody as valuable before the Lord. Well, there's one more thing Paul wants to do here, and it's to do with the work of Jesus. Have a look at verse 17 and following. So if you consider me a partner, Paul says, welcome him, that's welcome Omnissimus, as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Oh, it's, worth, it's worth saying here, but Paul doesn't owe, sorry, uh, Onesimus, sorry, not Onesimus, Philemon doesn't owe Paul money when he says here, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I assume that Philemon became a Christian under Paul's ministry. So when he says, you owe me your very self, he's essentially saying, you became a Christian under me. So I do wish, brother, he says in verse 20, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you'll do even more than I ask. See, what Paul says is, welcome him as you would welcome me. He doesn't deserve a welcome, but I want you to welcome him. And then he says, if he's done anything wrong or owes you any money, I will pay it back. Here's probably what happened. The reason Onesimus was able to run away was he was probably in a position of privilege in the house. Probably meant he knocked off some of his master's money and that enabled him to travel. So he probably stole and ran away. And what Paul is saying here is, I'm going I'm to put you guys back together and if the money's a problem, guess who's going to back it up? Paul says, I'll foot the bill. I'll cover this so that you might receive him back. And when Paul does that, he is acting like Jesus. Because Jesus welcomes us when we don't deserve it, and he pays the debt that we could never repay. Do you see that? So people who have found new life, they enact the good news. They enact the good news. They become people who live out the good news to other people. And I guess I want us to think about 
Do we express new life in the way that we relate to others? Are we agents of reconciliation? Are we people who will restore relationship? This is just a fun photo from a year ago. Popped up in my thing the other day. Uh, A year ago, we were in the Philippines. Amazing. We just went to visit our um, sponsor kids. And we arrived in Cebu, and this is the team looking very perky and excited. And we're excited because somebody turned up to greet us. They'd heard we were coming, and they were ready. Gratuitous link to the passage. Have a look at verse 22. And one more thing. It's so personal. This is, this is such a personal letter. Have a look at verse 22. Oh, one more thing. Paul says, stop, don't send it yet. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. What do we see? Well, firstly, we see that Philemon is faithfully praying for Paul. Dear God, let Paul get out of jail. Now, that's a good prayer, but I tell you what's a pretty audacious prayer. The Romans have him in jail. How likely is it that they'll let him walk? Anyway, uh, he's faithful in praying it. It's faith-filled hope. I hope that it happens. And Paul is hopeful that it happens, and so he asks him to make some faithful preparations. Put a room aside for me. You know, you're praying this extraordinary thing. I believe that God can do it. I believe that you believe that God can do it, so make me a bed. It's pretty good, isn't it? And so my question is, we, we, we try and be a church that's faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring. The adventurous, under-adventurous, we ask this question. What are you praying for that only God can do? What are you praying for that only God can do? There are some extraordinary things that we can ask him for, but do we have faith? Will we, will we ask for the Roman prisoner to be released? Well, I pray that God will help us to build a new kids' ministry centre out there so we can take this out here and put 100 seats in here. Yeah, I'm praying for that. I don't, I don't know how that's possible at the moment. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's impossible at the moment. But that's what I'm praying for. I'm praying for the salvation of my friends. That's, that's impossible at the moment. What are you praying for that only God can do? Well, how should we respond? He, he signs off by saying, all the crew with me send their love. Fantastic. Uh, that's the end of the letter to, to Philemon. How should we respond? Well, I want to start with the impossible application. The impossible application is what we can't do if we've heard this message tonight. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and make sure that I'm the person who always holds a grudge. I'm going to make sure nobody gets away with anything. I'm going to be the most hard-hearted person that anybody knows. You can't do that, can you, off the back of what we've seen tonight? But Paul is asking the slave owner to take the slave back as a brother. Why? Because that's how Jesus treated us. So, so we can't live unreconciled lives. Will we refuse to pass on the gospel goodness we've received? That would be a tragedy. Some of us here might go, hey, it sounds amazing that you can have your debts forgiven. It sounds amazing that there's a welcome. Some of you need to start the journey with Jesus. And so my encouragement is, will you begin to understand the one who's behind this new community? If there's forgiveness here, learn about Jesus. So you might want to put down on your Care and Connect card, I'd like to do Jesus for the curious next term. Write it down. For some of you, you might like to be people who facilitate reconciliation. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul, essentially, is taking Philemon's hand and Onesimus' hand and putting them together, isn't he? 
That, that's what the letter is. He's helping reconciliation happen. As believers, maybe you can help somebody else get right in relationship. Some of you might be able to, to do that. Will we seek to help others to be restored to relationship because of our love to Jesus? But I think this is what we all must do. I think that we all need to grow deeper in our relationships with one another. Will we build a community that is truly brother and sister deep? I'll tell you how you can't build a community that's brother and sister deep. See, Apphia was called Paul's sister. Okay? I'll tell you how you can't make somebody here tonight your sister. Have a handful of chips once a week with somebody and go, you know what? We had such a great handful of chips, Naomi. I reckon you're my sister. How wonderful, right? That, that, that isn't going to work. A handful of chips five, uh, 50 times a year won't make us brothers and sisters. We have to dare to get to know one another. We have to share our lives together. And if you go, I don't know, I've been coming to church for ages and nobody knows me. I go, do you know it's a two-way street? You'll be known as well as you choose to be known. Yeah? I mean, I mean sure, we'll let you down. We'll fail. I regret to say that, but we will. We're humans. We're... But, but here's the thing. We'd love to know you. I'd love this to be a place where brother and sister is a reality, a spiritual reality. But we can only do that to the extent that we choose to share our lives together. So tonight, after the service, we're going to have dinner. And you can stay if you'd like to. I'd love you to. We, we should thank the beautiful people who prepared it. But here's the thing. Don't just view it as an opportunity to get a free feed. It's Sunday night. I don't have to cook. Yes! And, and that, that's good, incidentally. That's great. It's a great reason to hang around. So that's, a, that's a great reason to hang around. But, but here's the thing. What, what if it was an opportunity to put one more step in the process towards getting to know one another, that we might care for one another, that we might be spiritual family together? You see, Paul writes, he writes to them in this way, and he says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. You see, this wasn't a church of exceptional people. But it was an exceptional community. I want to pray that we might be that now. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are gracious. You loved us when we didn't deserve it. You cancelled our debts when we were slaves to sin. You welcomed us back, Father, and you've entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Father, forgive us where we've withheld forgiveness to others. Give us the energy and the desire to know each other better, that we might truly be family here at New Life. Help us to know and be known, to dare to reveal something of ourselves, Father, that we might be loved and cared for here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, whole book of the Bible. Well done, church. Congratulations. You got through it. Philemon done in the can. You know all about Philemon now. Fantastic. Have we got any questions arising from tonight? Caro. 
It's important that you know, Carol's my wife. It's important that you know, I don't plant questions uh, with Carol. He pays um, me quite well. She, uh, <laughs> she goes rogue all the time. It's fantastic. Carol, what do you got for us? Um, I don't think I've ever thought about the Christian community having slaves before. I always think of the Romans and people in power. I presume the Christians did. Um, question is, how do you think they treated their slaves? Was this a new concept when Jesus came that they were to treat them fairly? Uh, had they been treated fairly before, or was it just a cultural thing where they were all treated badly in the home? Does that make sense? I, th- I think it's such a good question, Kara. And we would love to think that Christians were above this, don't wouldn't we? Christians did all their own dishes, ploughed their own fields. They were a standout group. Um, I think we'd love to think that. But the answer is no. They, they, they had slaves as much as anyone else. Um, and that, I think, shames us in some sense, doesn't it? Uh, but, but listen again to what we heard in Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. If you want, you've got your Bibles there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Listen to these with fresh ears, right? Remember, this is written to the church. Listen. Slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favouritism. Chapter 4, verse 1, so important, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. It's revolutionary. It actually says the Christian slave owner isn't the boss. You are not the boss. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus is the boss, and they need to then act as people under authority. Somebody's actually going to hold them to account. So, Carol, I think think the answer is, um, extraordinarily, yes, Christians kept slaves. Tragedy. But revolutionarily, uh, Paul and, and the good news about Jesus changes that relationship and says, actually, you need to do right here rather than just take advantage. Does that make sense? Answer your question in part. I'll answer follow-up. Go. So does that mean that it was a new thing for them and so it was still kind of filtering through the Christian community this is a new way that we do life at home? Yep. Yep. So I think he, he literally is just crashing in to all the standard ways that Romans related to their slaves, that, which, makes the, which makes this amazing, right? Makes, makes this, this Bible a, a revolutionary document, even as slavery continued for another 300 years. It, it, the seeds for the revolution are sown here by saying, treat them as humans. You're going to have to give an account to God. Another question? Yeah, Sky. Sorry, it's not really related to this passage. Oh, no, that's fun. Go. What have you got for (laughs) Um, us? How do we as Christians find the line between celebrating earthly things like graduating or something like that and idolizing them? That's such a great question. Is there a reason that that's on your mind, Sky? Um, Well, we did just have our year 12 graduation at school and I was like, oh, why is everyone so excited about this? But it was also cool to me. So I was like, how do you find the line? I think that's really helpful. Here's one of the things. I actually think our, um, our uh, public life doesn't have very many markers of um, adulthood, right? We, we don't actually have uh, many things that mark out the big divisions in our lives. And so 
finishing high school, leaving where you've been for the last 13 years and making a celebration of that makes sense as a marker in your life. Something new is happening. There's a new stage there, right? Um, You're about to go from having your timetable entirely owned by somebody else to being a free person. It's a bit of a lie. But we think that, right? But here's the thing. It's worth celebrating. Uh, Your question is, how do we avoid turning that into an idol, as in this is the really the most important thing in our lives? And, And so I actually think that's a really good question. And my thing would be, it should be for the Christian, celebrate away. Has God been faithful in your schooling up to year 12? Celebrate away. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. We, we had a, a, a thing, a tradition at our school where everyone would write on everyone's shirts at the end, right? Does anyone know this? Yeah? And one of the things I prayed about in the lead up to the last day of year 12 was what should I write on everyone's shirts? And, and I actually hunted around and I found, because I'm a nerd, right? Okay, I'm just a nerd. Okay, I just want to own that in front of you. I'm a dag. But I, I found uh, Philippians... Um, Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So everyone I knew who knew Jesus, all right, Philippians 1, 1 to 9 on their shirt. How do we not turn it into idolatry? We invite God into it, We celebrate whatever it is in itself, but we don't exclude God in the process. And I think if you find a celebration where God doesn't intersect with that, when we don't look and say thanks, when we don't pray for what's ahead, then then it easily turns into idolatry. And I think that's what we've got to avoid. Does that make sense? So involve God. Who would have thought? Involve God in every aspect of our lives. Thank you. Someone else? Another question? We're just working Michael out. If I can have a question up the back, maybe there, uh, that'd be that'd be super. Uh, I'm going to talk about slavery again. Um, you can correct me if you think this is wrong, but overall, the Bible seems to have this perception that slavery is wrong, but just a reality of, of existence. So it provides circumstances for how the slave and the master are to be, and especially in the Old Testament. So my question is: I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 23. <laughs> Sorry verses 15 and 16, where they're encouraged to take in the, the escaped slave and to not return them to their master. So I was wondering how Paul reconciles that with what he's writing to Philemon, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, can you give me what, what verse was it? Uh, 23, 15 to 16. Uh, if a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like, in whatever town they choose, do not oppress them. Interesting. I'm going to have to go back and think a little bit carefully. I'm wondering whether the assumption here is that the Israelites aren't keeping slaves. I can't remember that uh, through here in Deuteronomy. Um, Okay, interesting. Uh, If you get a runaway slave in your place, don't return them. I think that's because probably the same sort of outcome would happen. If you return the runaway slave, they'd they'd be killed, I think. And so it's a mercy rule. That would be my guess. Uh, Your question was? My question was, uh, what would 
Maybe how would Paul, yeah, how how would Paul hold Deuteronomy with Philemon? Yeah. What a wonderful Bible college question, Tim. It's fantastic. <laughs> I like it. Why do I like it? I'll tell you why. Because you, we should learn, we should learn to hold this book together, right? It's not two gods. There's not a God in the Old Testament and then a God in the New. So it's an integration question, which is why I love it. Excellent, Tim. My answer to that is I don't know. Um, that's my considered opinion. Um, I, I suspect, I, I've no doubt Paul knew about that. However, I think that he doesn't believe that he's returning on Nisimus as a slave. Are you with me? And so what he's actually doing is he's sending a Christian brother back to a Christian brother. And so he doesn't feel that he's contravening Deuteronomy 23, 15 to 16, which we now all know, how wonderful. Um, I don't think he thinks he's contravening that because he doesn't believe he's sending a slave back. He's sending a brother back to his brother. Yeah, yes, a follow-up question, Naomi. No, it's not really a follow-up question, but I guess I sort of thinking similarly as an answer. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, you've got I'm an answer just, for I'm me. Fantastic, Naomi. Keep answer. going. <laughs> um, I guess from what we see in Deut- Deuteronomy, it's, it's about mercy and it's the same, same in the past. This is a merciful it's, act. It's, it's still a merciful act. Yeah. It's really good. And, and yes, so he's provided the mercy that's, that's interpreted back here in Deuteronomy by, by setting him up for the way he comes home. Yeah, that's really good. I like Naomi's answer. Go, go with Naomi's <laughs> answer. That's great. No, thank you. Is there any more questions? Yeah, one at the back, Ali. It was at the back. That's fantastic. That's so good. It took me all my time in the kitchen to remember what I was going to ask you. Um, If everyone's got that inherent worth from God and we know why, um, how does that then read into or, or speak into our, say, view on, say, refugees, whereas where I think a lot of, Christians are very mixed and divided on that issue. It's kind of like, well, yeah, but only if they do it the legal way will we support a refugee, but if they've done it illegally, we won't, whereas that seems to challenge us that Anismus wasn't exactly the law-abiding citizen, but he was still encouraged to be welcomed. And how how does that read into our current-day situation? I think it's a fabulous question because it's complex, and it goes to something that uh, the quick-draw answer, probably we need to nuance, right? But here's my my first thought. You have rightly understood what's at the heart of this passage. Every individual has worth, and that would include the non-category of illegal refugees. You can't be an illegal refugee. That's actually the way the law works. You can't be illegal. You can enter a country in a way that they don't want you to, but that's different according to the UN Charter, okay? So that's, that's the first thing. You can't be an illegal refugee. But, but, but the question is, how should that then impact the way that Christians talk about it? I think that was your question. And I, th- I think we need to do better at thinking about public policy stuff as Christians. I just think we're, we are an inch deep on our ethics, is what I would say. I don't think we think ethically very well as Christians. And so it's much easier if we can get a big bat and hit each other on the head and say, but they're illegal, we shouldn't, but they're humans, we should. I actually think the answer to the refugee situation is very complex and we need to work hard at it. However, the underlying thing is, yes, an illegal runaway was restored. That's the reality. And because he had innate worth, 
and that would apply to everyone. What Australia's public policy would be, let's sit down and have dinner and talk it through. I hope that's been suitably unsatisfying for you, Ali. Uh, in essence, guys, here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, hard, public policy is actually really hard, right? It, it's actually not easy. There are implications for the decisions that we make. We have finite resources, but I think to say, here's the simple, easy answer, isn't how public policy works. And so we should pray for who? Politicians. More specifically, there's a guy at the top of the pile at the moment, Scott Morrison, who actually has some say in how these laws are made, Ali. And we, we've got to be better at praying for Scott, I think, and asking for wisdom to apply what we know in that public space. But thanks for the question. I think it's great. We better stop. Uh, apparently there's dinner waiting for us. There is grace awaiting us. Isn't that good? I'm going to sit down.